0: Hello, this is your host, Michelle, and welcome to today's episode of The Happy Pelvis Podcast, a podcast all about bridging the gaps in pelvic health care and bringing awareness to the hurdles individuals face as a result of living with persistent pelvic pain. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Happy Pelvis. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Welcome to today's episode of the Happy Pelvis podcast where I'll be chatting with Dr. Tanya DiRena specifically about the diagnosis, assessment, and management of chronic pelvic pain. Dr. Derena is the medical director for the Toronto Academic Pain Medicine Institute at Women's College Hospital, also known as TAPME. TAPME is a comprehensive interdisciplinary academic pain program that is the hub for chronic pain care here in Toronto. Before TAPME, Dr. DeRena was the medical director of pain at the Ottawa Hospital. During her time in Ottawa, she created three multidisciplinary pain clinics with various medical and surgical specialties. One of these clinics was Ontario's first multidisciplinary pelvic pain clinic with Canadian minimally invasive surgeon and endometriosis specialist, Dr. Singh. Hello, Dr. DiRena. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me today and chat a little bit about pelvic pain.
1: Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Can you share with myself and the community a little bit about yourself, maybe a one- or two-liner um, of who you are personally aside from what you do in medicine?
1: So I... Um... I'm a. Uh, I'm in my forties. <laughs> I um, got into medicine because I wanted to help people, and I am a anesthesiologist by trade. But I'm more importantly a mom of two little girls who are 12 and 8 years old. And having girls, I think, is very apropos to being a public pain specialist, um, because they do teach me a lot about kind of what we don't, what I was never told as a little girl, um, about, uh, my body parts and how to either enjoy them or be aware of them. Mm Um, I'm also a a children, like I'm a child of immigrant parents. And I think that's important too, because there's a bit of a cultural difference between, um, how we live in Canada and how my parents were raised. Um, and I golf for fun. I speak three languages, and that's probably me in a nutshell. Golfing's
0: yeah. uh, amazing. Have you been going out uh, this summer at all? Getting yes, out?
1: yes. Anytime I have, uh, I either try to get out with my kids or my girlfriends. That's kind of our outing is is to do something athletic.
0: Oh, that's so great. When I brainstorm guests to have on this podcast and. After a quick Google search that I may or may not have done when I became your patient and when I knew that you were going to be a part of the Happy Pelvis podcast, I noticed that before coming to Toronto, you were in Ottawa and you created a multidisciplinary pain clinic with different medical um, and surgical specialties. And one of those clinics was Ontario's first multidisciplinary um, female or assigned female at birth uh, pelvic pain clinic with endo specialist and also minimally invasive surgeon, um, Dr. Sony Singh, who is well known within the pelvic pain community. Um, could you explain that a little bit and how that was developed? I'd love to know more.
1: Sure. You know, the most, most of these clinics are dev- developed out of demand. So um, and g- like gaps in care. And so when you really look at who's being referred to your clinic you start noticing okay there's this overwhelming pelvic pain population so we really have to target um th- this population and that we have to you know the community is telling us um that they need this uh, and it's funny it's sometimes not the hospital telling you or the ministry of health telling you it's actually the community that you serve telling you that you need to create some specialty services um which is sometimes unfortunate, right? Like there's a lack of recognition of how much of a need there is. And those these two clinics were born out of need um, in terms of assessing a gap in care. Um, you know, a, lo- a lot of women go so long without um, being assessed for uh, endometriosis-related pain or any type of pelvic pain. Oh, Maybe yeah. their concerns aren't taken as seriously um, or, you know, you're just taught as a child to just suck it up. Um, but and this is a part of you know having a menstrual cycle, et cetera, when you're born female at birth, or you're assigned for a female at birth, but um you really see that it's a huge gap and there's a significant gap in understanding. Like I mean, the diagnosis diagnosis is still a bit of a mystery.
0: Mm-hmm. So um let's jump right in right there. I- um so could you explain or define what is chronic or persistent? pelvic pain? Um, how would you define that?
1: So, so chronic pain has a formal definition, I'm just going to forgive me, I'm going to read off of it, because I think it's important to get the wording correct. Because we get this definition from the International Association for the Study of Pain. And that's the kind of uh, world governing body for definitions and uh, for pain management, and they're called the IASP. And just to let you know that Toronto is hosting the IASP meeting this year, which is really important. It's kind of putting us on the map in terms of world leaders in pain management. Um, So their definition kind of went through uh, several iterations, and this is the most recent. So chronic pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. And that's important because it's sensation and emotion, right? And it's something we never really recognize. And it's associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage so it's basically warning your body that there's something happening or there's the potential for something happening so some kind of damage happening and they expanded on it by kind of um by expanding the word pain uh, to give it more of a, a valuable context and th- this, the last couple of iterations of the definition included that pain is always a personal experience that is influenced to varying degrees by biological, psychological, and social factors. Pain and nociception are different phenomena. Pain cannot be inferred solely from activity in sensory neurons. Um, and there is life, uh, through their life experiences, individuals learn the concept of pain and a person's report of an experience of pain should be respected. And although pain serves as an adaptive role, it may have adverse effects on function and social and psychological well-being. Verbal descriptions are are only one of several behaviors to express pain. Inability to communicate does not negate the possibility that a human or non-human animal experiences pain. And pain in the pelvis is basically pain that refer it refers to pain in the lower abdomen and anything between the hip bones. Is that is that thorough for you, Michelle? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So chronic pain, by definition, is usually pain that lasts longer than three to six months, and it's given this kind of arbitrary arbitrary timeline because if you had something that caused you pain or the onset of damage. Um, you should take about three to six months to fully heal. So if you still have pain that's ongoing, it might be that now pain, the symptom of a previous issue might be an actual disease now.
0: Okay, okay. Um, I know firsthand how frustrating it is to narrow down and try to figure out a root cause to, the, to my personal pelvic pain. Um, why is it so difficult to narrow it down and to treat patients and to treat them and for them to move on with their lives why is it so difficult
1: that's a really good question and a huge kind of loaded question (laughs) so it has to do with number one recognizing pain as a symptom and recognizing it also as a disease so a lot of times people uh, go with their pain um, unmanaged and undiagnosed and unnoticed for a very long time and when that happens, it becomes very hard to find the primary pain generator. So I've had pain people who come to me after having pain from, let's say, endometriosis for 20 years. Me. <laughs> yeah, and so if it's never diagnosed at first and addressed very early on, what happens is a lot of, there's a lot of kind of crosstalk. Uh, between organs that sit in the pelvis right the pelvis is like a bowl full of organs Mm -hmm. and so when one of them gets affected it'll secrete an inflammatory mediator so something that's warning the body hey there's some some process going on here unfortunately that inflammatory process also stimulates some of the other organs around like the genital urinary system the genitals we mentioned the 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 rectum the, the sigmoid colon the rectum and all of the muscle tissues That surround this area and some of the bones and so when you have this kind of peppering of inflammatory mediators in that area all of a sudden over time all of those organs start getting affected so if you've had an issue that just affected the uterus the rectum and sigmoid colon start getting involved right because they've been exposed to to inflammatory mediators and so they start uh uh, behaving um inappropriately or they there's some dysfunction that develops there and so when you've had these issues for such a long time, you now have the bladder involved, the rectum and the sigmoid colon involved, and now the musculature. And the musculature is like any anything else in the body. The muscles that supply the pelvic floor are also responsible for having coordinated bowel and bladder movements. And so they're very closely linked to the organs. That doesn't really happen in a lot of other areas of the body. Like your spleen doesn't care what happens to your knee. Right? Yes. So if you have, Uh, a splenomegaly like a big spleen your knee's not going to be affected but in pelvic pain if something's affecting your uterus all the muscles that surround uh, the pelvic floor are going to start getting involved Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: now it becomes this kind of issue where okay what's happening first is it a muscle issue or, or do you have an organ issue or do you have an organ issue that's now involved the muscles And then hold on, Michelle, this gets even crazier.
0: Where do the nerves fall into this?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so you have a whole plexus of nerves that supply this whole area and it's called S234. So your spinal cord is made of various segments, um, uh, depending on where they come out of the spine. So your spine is divided into the cervical. So the neck part, the thoracic part, the lumbar part, and the sacral part. And the nerve roots that come to supply the the, the pelvic floor are S two, three, four. So there's a, a little joke we say in medicine where S two, three, four keeps the pee off the floor. So that's how you remember. It. <laughs> that's
0: so, cute. So uh, it,
1: it's it's cute until it starts hurting, yes. right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of things start to affect the nerves, right? So even endometriosis can affect the nerves. It, you can invade a certain plexi, certain groups of nerves that sit into the pelvic floor. Um, there's a lot of crosstalk uh, between the various organs. So the crosstalk is ne- comes out of necessity. So your organs and your pelvic floor musculature talk to each other so that you can have a bowel and bladder movement, right? It's really essential for them to be coordinated. Um, and so when one is affected, the other one subsequently gets affected. So if your, if your uterus is affected, you might have crosstalk between those nerves that supply some of the muscles. Mm -hmm. So when this has been going on for years, it becomes like a pot of boiling soup. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's really hard to figure out what was the initial cause. So when we talk about concepts and chronic pain, we talk about having a fire on your stove, right? So let's say you're cooking, minding your own business, maybe talking on your phone while you're cooking. And you get a fire on your stove because some oil kind of leaks over, mm-hmm. and now you have a fire, and your fire alarm bell goes off. And your fire alarm bell is really useful because it's there to tell you, hey, like get off your phone, pay attention, get the fire extinguisher, or call nine one one. You're going to have a fire here, and it's going to get really bad. You're 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 at really high risk of losing your whole kitchen, or losing your oven, and if. If the fire goes away, let's say you've done, you know, you've taken care of business and and paid attention to that fire alarm bell. People get really fixated with looking at the cause of the fire and chronic pain when you've had it for so long is now a broken fire alarm bell Mm -hmm. and people kind of move away from looking at that broken fire alarm bell and they really get fixated on, please tell me what was the initial cause of the fire. And when you've had pain for 20 years, you get so fixated on finding the initial cause of the fire, no one paying attention to that, that you lose sight of the fact that you've stopped living and stopped cooking because of this broken fire alarm bell.
0: What a great, that's a very great visual and easy for somebody with chronic pain to understand really easily. That's bang on. (laughs) Yeah, you focus and you just want to figure out and what it is and um, eradicate it, figure it out and move on. But that's just unfortunately not as easy as it as uh, you think it is.
1: Absolutely. And I totally sympathize with that. And I empathize with that. And the fact that sometimes people, you know, their fires have gone ignored for so long that people get this feeling of injustice. Like if someone had only paid attention to my fire, I wouldn't have had this broken fire alarm bell. But that becomes that way of thinking also becomes very disruptive, right? It becomes so that you can't move on and you can't start cooking again. Because the truth is you can, like this is really annoying. This broken fire alarm bell, no doubt makes you only focus on that. It's hard to go to work. It's hard to do anything different.
0: Yeah.
1: But, but getting stuck on like trying to find the initial cause of the fire is, is not healthy because you get exposed to a lot of people who don't understand chronic pain. You get maybe mistreated by a lot of people who don't understand what the issues are right Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes physicians when we don't know what we're dealing with we don't have the best way of dealing with things we don't understand right rather Mm -hmm. than blaming our lack of science or lack of evidence we kind of blame the patient because we're like hey we don't know what's going on like you don't have a a surgical cause or something I can really fix and Mm -hmm. so we really have to look at our own internal biases of not being able to help people right And that's why I told you that, listen, we get into this job to try to help people. And sometimes when we can't, we don't do the right thing by telling people, listen, you know, we can't help you or we can't figure out exactly the cause, but we know we have to keep teaching you how to live, right? We know we have to help you to live.
0: Um, The quality of life needs to improve.
1: right, Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, just like you explained, like the the mechanisms of chronic pain are not always clear Um, in current treatment strategies. Like they're not very successful um, a lot of the time, such as surgery, leaving patients um, as well as healthcare providers such as yourself frustrated. How do you manage this? How I could see you managing it with patients and explaining to them and sitting down with them. Um, and discussing that fire alarm um, thing because that that ties into that. But how do you go about managing these um, expectations and the frustration from patients and other practitioners as well?
1: So I think education is is probably like a little part of it, right? And and I think education on many levels, even in terms of our primary care providers, so our family physicians, who are really the the, the most contact with a lot of patients about addressing pain when people are really young, like paying attention to them, asking them, like, are you having any pains that we should be paying attention to? Um, yeah. You know, you know, when you have period pain and it might be endo, like we don't, we kind of clump it all in and say, okay, this is a part of life you might have to deal with. But if we address it really early on, maybe we can avoid um, the whole area becoming sensitized, right? Yeah. Yep. So, so I think education and research too like researching women's health, um, like the uh, putting dollars, whether it's from the private sector or from the government, in, into women's health issues. Right, because mm-hmm. if you look at the huge burden of chronic pain, it, most of it sits with women. So what's happening? What's happening when we grow up uh, that, yeah. that we're really ignoring? So really focusing some dollars to look at what's happening. Are we our our endometriosis patients? We just go ignored for such a long time that now you've developed this kind of sensitization, this boiling pot, and now there's nothing to do for it in terms of reversing anything. Mm -hmm. Can we get to a point where we're we're actually ahead of ourselves and treating things really early, like we do with a lot of uh, other chronic diseases, right? We put money into them when we figure out, okay, how do we target this when people are really young so that we can avoid bigger problems much later in life?
0: I couldn't agree more in my certain certain situation if my pain was addressed at my teens 12-13 if pelvic floor physical therapy was addressed and said hey try this out I wouldn't be where I am today so I, I that definitely aligns I totally agree that education is number one and is that did you come to Toronto to uh to educate and start a pelvic
1: pain program here is that the goal is to um I so so just from a history perspective I came to Toronto um because we moved because of my husband's job okay uh but I I got hired to run TapMe, me which was um a result of uh some ministry funding being injected into some of the uh, academic pain programs so that we could hire health disciplines for free uh, and offer these for free to patients, so patients wouldn't have to pay for groups for psychology or or physiotherapy. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is, it's never it's not enough money to address the need, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you have we have one public physiotherapist. I mean, to, the GTA has has twenty five percent of its population suffering with chronic pain, and you, we have one public physio. So it's it's never a, enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to really focus on organizing care so that we could do things early on. yeah. Uh, just rearranging care so that, you know, we can try to help people manage now that they've been suffering for so long, but really trying to target um, a lot of the early interventions, a lot of education, because um, I, I, and a lot of, you know, refocusing research maybe on on women's health, a lot of,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it, it's it's really tough. You know, as a person, as you like watching you living with chronic pain, it's really tough to know as a physician if, if we had only done things much earlier on, we could have changed maybe this per- person's uh, uh, projection in life, um, especially because you get so many secondary pain syndromes, right? You start with one thing and then cascades. Into- yeah, it does. It cascades the way you hold your body, the way you walk, your gait changes. Uh, you know, you don't use certain parts of your body like they're meant to be used, and then you develop SI joint pain and hip pain and foot pain and all kinds of things.
0: Uh, a vicious cycle.
1: Yeah, it's a snowball effect, and then you you know, then even to go back and target the endometriosis after those changes changes have set in for such a long time seems yep. kind of silly, right? Like mm-hmm. even treating sometimes the root cause, if there is one, that you could find. Uh, and and surgically remove, it's not going to help you with those 20 years of things you, you know, this thing has done to your body. That
0: boiling pot. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Even taking out the endo is not going to reverse the changes that have happened to your gut, to your bladder, to your hips, to your pelvic floor. Like that's...
0: And it's that, what they say, like that biopsychosocial approach that can get your, improve your quality of life, right? Like as a physician, you can't say this, I'm going to solve your pain. This You can't guarantee that, but providing us the tools that we need every day, such as mindfulness, pelvic floor physical therapy, medication that helps with pain modulation, all of that put together helps us live our lives a little bit easier with our chronic pain. And we really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to know, just jumping back, um, when you get uh to see a patient what does your assessment look like do you you, is there a questionnaire that that patients fill out history genetic um, trauma in-person assessment physical assessment what does that look like in your clinic
1: um so um, pre-covid we had a lot of questionnaires and and then covid made everything difficult because we went quickly um to doing virtual assessments uh which decrease our inability to have patients fill out uh, questionnaires. We were relying heavily on our um, EMR, which is our our hospital-based electronic medical record system. And we were going to, we are now using that to push out questionnaires via email. But as you know, the pickup for that is really low, right? Like patients are are sometimes have a hard time navigating an email system where they have to fill things out online and then send them back in. There's only a certain population that can do that successfully. So our collection of data has significantly decreased in terms of uh, uh, data that we use for assessments and the questionnaires that we normally use are things that, um, that measure the mental health components and the reason why we measure anxiety and depression is cuz those are things we can actually give medications for and have interventions that might help with people's perception of pain cuz as you know if you have an anxiety disorder or you're depressed that's going to just make your pain worse so and if you're, you control that sorry
0: sorry sorry and you're not telling the patient it's your anxiety or your depression causing the pain. no your pain is the, is the is the trigger for your anxiety and depression and we want to help that right?
1: right Right. When you look at the limbic system, the way parts of your brain are organized that that, that mem- uh, uh, store memories, they're usually stored with emotions. So memories are stored with emotions like depression and anxiety and usually pain has to be stored with something negative because if it was stored with happiness, then we'd all be, be uh, the pleasure seeking part would actually kill us, right? So mm-hmm. if we found pain and pleasure ev- from an evolutionary perspective, it's very dangerous. So your limbic system is made so that you store a, a pain with a negative memory. And so by addressing the, uh, uh, with a negative emotion, sorry, I have to correct myself. So if you store uh, a pain under um, a negative emotion like anxiety or depression, If you try to teach people, hey, whenever you feel anxiety or depression, your pain is going to be exacerbated. They're stored together in a certain part of your brain. So we have to help you unlock that piece. So that's why those questionnaires are are asked. It's just so that we know, like we have pills, we have programs. If you don't want to take medications like mindfulness-based stress reduction to help with people who have anxiety disorders or CBT to help with people who have depression, we can offer these things to you that might be helpful, even though they're directed for something else. Uh, But you're correct. I think your assumption is the patient's making it look like we're saying, uh, the intention is not to say this is your anxiety and depression. The intention is to say these things are so closely linked that you have to take care of that part in order for you to ever get better.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, We will ask sleep questionnaires. We ask trauma questionnaires. um, uh, And... um, we get a lot of gynecological assessments. So we require a gynecologist or urologist to have seen you to make sure there's nothing that can be surgically removed. That's the only purpose of getting that preemptive assumption, uh, preemptive uh, um, assessment is that we wanna make sure that a surgeons eyeballed you to see if something can be removed like a tumor or a big growth uh, that would warrant removal Um, so, so that's, that's a big part of our assessment is assessing, uh, uh, that you've had a, uh, a urologist or a gynecologist consultation, even a gen surge, if you have rectal pain, and then, um, we do ask some of those questionnaires.
0: Okay. And then we
1: do have a physical assessment. Um, if based on history, we feel like there's some conflicting information or to assess you for possibly secondary pain syndromes that might be getting, Uh, We might be getting things confused, like SI joint pain or hip pain. We would want to see you for that purpose.
0: Okay. Um, I noticed in my last appointment with you, you clearly told me we won't move forward forward with anything you're not comfortable with, with which is something I really appreciated. So uh, leaning into that, what are some tips for trauma-informed care that you and your team use? Because... Um, myself, along with so many in the community, have trauma um, alongside our pain um, on different levels. So how do you uh, go about uh, addressing trauma-informed care?
1: That's a great question, Michelle, and I think it's a question we should be asking all hospitals and all health practitioners is, you know, what, how do you deliver trauma-informed care? Um, So I think empowering the patient is a huge thing, like telling the patient, look, you could say no to this, you don't have to take these medications. This is your choice. This is your body. Um, You don't have to be examined. Um, You can wait for an examination if you don't, you know, if you don't think you're comfortable enough and you don't have to. um, uh, I think there was a there was a view of physicians as being this, you know, this kind of being that did something to you. Uh, whereas you have every right to, you know, partake in the decision making Mm -hmm. and and ensuring that the patient has the information. Like, to be honest with you, sometimes, unless we're looking for skin changes and somebody has vulvodynia, we don't always have to look at the vulva. We can wait um, until much later or until the patient decides that it's important for us to look at it. But, you know, you know your own vulva. If it doesn't, if it hasn't changed in a bit, then then we're Mm -hmm. okay with that. It is appropriate to do a physical assessment because we might be missing things, but that should be in a, in a place where you feel really safe. So you should, you should kind of know me at least once Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) to ensure
1: that you feel safe. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Those are Um, great. great And you should
1: really feel free to have this done in the way that you want it. Um, Whether it's you bringing a companion or somebody with you in the room to feel supportive, um, whether it's doing it so that you you you're not going to have a pain flare because that's what happens is that we you know we try to be there to manage people's pains and we examine them and then we know we're going to flare everything up so whatever I tell you after I flared you up you're not going to listen to it at all mm-hmm. right you're just going to perceive me maybe as someone who's hurting you uh, rather than helping you so yeah it's and then that to brings it. Trust
0: that brings it back to the pain in your mind and, and relating that to that sensation and that feeling. And it just brings the chronic pain right back to that patient. So absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Uh, so we're running out of time, but uh, what are some of your take-home messages to patients? Like, do you have any recommended books um, or questions? Patients should ask their doctors in regards to getting the right specialists to address their chronic pelvic pain?
1: So that's a great question too, because I think um, a lot of onus is on physicians and I think there's a health discipline team that we should be looking at, like kind of creating your team. Uh, if you could afford physical therapy, um, that is a huge piece of managing chronic pain, right? And it doesn't have to be internal physical therapy, it could be stretches and exercise therapy too, right? Understanding how that part of your body really works is important. Having a very well-trained physical therapist is also very important, right?
0: Accessibility definitely needs to improve on that front.
1: Absolutely. So having, you know, funding to help people who can't pay for things like physical therapy um, is a huge issue too, right? I mean, it's surprising that you can, that, uh, you know, our drug benefit programs will support opioids, but won't support things like physiotherapy. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you do, which will do much better things than, than, than a drug. Right. Mm-hmm. So really looking at, um, you know, it's huge, Michelle, you're looking at trying to solve a systemic problem and making it the patient's problem. So I hate even telling patients to have, to have anything kind of, you know, to do because we have to do a lot of it as, as people who, who help the <clears throat> who help organize programs and work with the government uh, to help direct funding. I think for patients, it's managing expectations. Sometimes when something happens, people want to go back to the way they were and managing the expectation that it might not be that way. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, you haven't failed, right? Um, Like managing the fact that maybe there is no cure and that doesn't mean we are hopeless. That means that uh, we have to live despite what's happening, right? There's
0: and maybe... still hope to have those good days and those yeah. good days to live your life a little bit easier.
1: Right, like focusing on the living part, right? And not and not the things you can't do, changing the way you speak, the language uh, in terms of you know, being dark and negative um, and, and embracing other options that are not surgical or not drugs, right? Um, embracing those things because those things work too there's a lot of good data uh, for psychological groups and support groups uh, and finding people who have similar issues uh, like wonderful people like you who do podcasts to inform patients that these are great um, these are great sources of information I mean you know having a support group is so important like creating something good out of something dark that's happened to you is huge,
0: right? Uh, Having the happy pelvis and starting the happy pelvis has given me such a sense of purpose. So I am a huge advocate for following passions, despite living with chronic pain and just going for it. Um, I know that some days are hard, but um, having a purpose in life, um, be it your children, your children is, uh, is a huge one, but, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but, uh, (laughs) I think
1: you're hitting the, I think you're hitting it right on the nail because I think looking at the overall big picture, right. Sometimes we get so fixated on one thing, um, that like taking a step back and really looking at your life and saying, okay, what is my real goal here? Like, what am I looking for? When I go see a pain practitioner, um, When I go see even a surgeon, what is the goal here, right? Because people should ask more questions about, okay, if I have the surgery, what are the chances it might not work? Yeah. And if it doesn't work, what are my options after that, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think people get to uh, sometimes physicians as like an end stop and saying, oh, after, you know, they're going to cure my pain, but Mm -hmm. things always don't work out as planned. And we got to know how often is this curative, Right
0: we have to manage those expectations.
1: Right. And I think getting involved in studies is a huge thing we see, you know, filling out surveys Mm -hmm. and studies and as a huge burden, because they are time, they're, um, they're, like, costly in terms of time. Uh, But I think that's huge, too, because it'll help us understand what's really happening. Like, how, how can we help you? And who can we help?
0: There's a, a lot more studies popping up that I am noticing that I share within my monthly newsletter um, a- like for pelvic pain, there's a vulvodynia one currently, there's an endometriosis one, like the University of Ottawa um, has a few going on right now. One of them's like tampons should not hurt. So if you (laughs) insert a tampon and it hurts, you're eligible for the study. Um, So sharing this information is definitely important. And it's good to know from a doctor's perspective that those studies mean something, that that data is is gold, um, because sometimes filling out those those forms takes a while and it takes time right but um and it might stir up some emotion because you're talking about your pain but it's really good to know from a patient perspective that it it does help so thanks for sharing that um yeah so how can someone in the Toronto area contact you or the TAPME me clinic if they're living with years of unexplained chronic pelvic pain and they don't know where to look
1: so um in terms of getting a referral to tap me, you can do that through your family physician, because we do require a family physician referral, okay, we would want you to have been assessed by a urologist, a gynecologist, or a general surgeon, somebody who uh, has taken a look at you in terms of, uh, is there a surgical, uh, um, you know, is there, is there a potential for surgery, so we want to see that you've had those things done. Um, we want to see some imaging you know, at least, uh, an ultrasound, uh, to make sure we're not missing any cancer. The reason for that is we would hate for someone not to have any imaging, like an ultrasound and then sit on a wait list with, with a tumor. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that really scares us. And so, uh, we, we would want some preliminary testing to be done first. Um, and we, we need you to have a family doc. So we like the referral to come through the family physician, especially if there's some medications that require some ongoing prescribing after you've completed some of the group therapies, we would want that to go back to the family doc. Okay. Um, the uh, other options um, in the city is there, there are some online self-management groups for chronic disease. And there's also some uh, online self-management for chronic pain. Uh, one of them is called Live Plan B Plus, and that's through Pain Canada. So that's a new group, um, a new committee that's been developed, and I'm on that committee, and we're trying to put together leaders in pain across the country uh, to to put together resources for patients who have chronic pain. Wonderful issues. So Live Plan B Plus is a is a, a, a platform. Um, that you can uh, go on to you can sign up for it and it shows you a bunch of uh, videos uh, and it's got a lot of good tested resources about chronic pain management um, uh, uh, pain bc has a lot of uh, information targeted towards women um, but the lift plan b plus is actually a part of pain bc and it's going to be bigger and um, kind of more more uh more informed from across the country
0: live plan b plus okay. that's correct. I'm making note of that thank you so much that's incredibly helpful for the listeners um thank you so much for your time
1: no problem. Uh,
0: we are a minute in like left so this is perfect uh timing yeah thank you i really appreciate that was super informative for everybody um I really
1: appreciate you too, Michelle, like in doing this, I don't think you understand sitting there, you know, with the pillows behind your back, the value of how many people you've touched, right? Doing these podcasts. That's um, my hope.
0: My like, yeah. that is if I can touch one person, which I have, and it just makes my day, people reaching out to me saying like, I've learned so much from one of your posts or one of your podcasts. Like it's it's been an incredible experience knowing I can share what I'm learning. Yeah. with everybody so if I can help in any way um, with dismantling information and education I'm I'm totally down for that so
1: perfect listen in this lifetime we will figure this out
0: in I this hope lifetime
1: so. we will figure this out okay and you'll be thank- one of the participants so thank you so much
0: thank you for your time have a great day thank you thanks Michelle I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Tanya DiRena Again, you can find her at the Women's College Hospital within the TAPME Clinic in Toronto, Canada. And the helpful resource that she provided for Canadians right now is liveplanbplus.ca. I have linked that directly in the description for you. And again, a big shout out to her and the entire team over there for helping us manage our chronic pain to help us live a better life. So thank you, Dr. Durena, and thank you, the listener, for listening all the way through this episode. I appreciate you so, so much. And I hope that you take some valuable information from this episode and apply it in one way or another to improve your own quality of life while living with persistent pelvic pain. If you'd like to stay in touch, Please make sure you subscribe to the Happy Pelvis Newsletter, which I send directly to your inbox every month, and download a free Pelvic Pain Resource Guide. You can find both of those links directly in the description. Well that's it for today. I hope you all have a low pain rest of your day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. Bye!